How can Catholic people prepare for this year's election? Archbishop John Wester and renowned speakers will help us think. Vatican Nuncio Christophe Pierre will help us pray. Register for the June Assembly of the Association of United States Catholic Priests at auscp.org. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hello. It's good to be with you remotely. We've given up the studio for Lent. <laughs> yes. And uh, so you're back from the Holy Land. I am. And you are where? I am in Arlington, Virginia, at my at my parents' house, awaiting the uh, birth of my first niece. Uh, my sister Jackie is oh! currently at the hospital in labor. So if I if I run out of the room, it's because I've been I've been called. <laughs> well, we definitely need to get this episode out so she has something to listen to on Friday. Yes, this recovery. is true. <laughs> we gotta we gotta hook hook the baby while she's young. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm in, uh, I am in coming at you from Brooklyn because while I am back from the Holy Land pilgrimage, uh, I was actually in Bethlehem the the day before it was shut down out of fear. Uh, there had been some cases reported in there. And so I feel fine. I haven't been exposed to anyone with the virus, but out of an abundance of caution, I'm not going to work for a little bit. So here I am from my, uh, from my, the comfort of my own home. All right. Well, we are glad you are safely back from the Holy Land. <laughs> and I hope to hear more about that, maybe in Consolations and Desolations. There are a few of those. I would imagine so. Um, but our guest this week is very exciting. Amanda Martinez Beck is a fat activist and the co-host of the Fat and Faithful podcast. She recently wrote a piece for America Magazine titled, Why Lent Can Be a Dangerous Time When You're Recovering from an Eating Disorder. Yeah, I was really struck by that piece. It's not something I think about often and uh, really gave me something to think about. So I think our listeners are going to enjoy this a lot. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So we're going to start talking about what everyone is talking about. And I feel like we should say we're recording this on Tuesday, the 10th of March. Uh, feels like the news, this news changes every few hours. But our first wrinkle of the story, as I mentioned, I was in the Holy Land and in Bethlehem. And on March 4th, uh, which is a day after I was there, an outbreak of coronavirus was reported in a hotel on the outskirts of Bethlehem. So the priest at the Church of Nativity closed it down immediately for a period of two weeks. And the Palestinian Authority then placed all of the West Bank on lockdown. This is a big deal for them because the majority of economic activity in Bethlehem is from tourists. Right. And, and as we know, this is a, a virus that is not contained to any one country. Um, and outside of China, where this outbreak began, Italy has actually been the hardest hit country. Um, I think as of today, there are over 600 deaths there. And the entire country is basically on a kind of lockdown. Um, and this has affected the Vatican as well. Yeah. Pope Francis had been ill with a cold, not coronavirus, for much of the past week. Um, but had started to cancel some audiences while coronavirus was starting to spread. Anyway, and this past Sunday, Francis broke with tradition by live streaming his Angelus address to try and limit the large crowds that 
gather in St. Peter's Square. Um, and he's going to do the same thing with his public audience tomorrow on Wednesday. Right. And he's also um, begun live streaming his daily mass, uh, which he does every every morning at the Santa Marta guest house. Um, so uh, anyone around the world can now tune into that mass. Um, and he's kind of offering it as a as a you know sign of solidarity with everyone who's confronting this virus. But it seems like a, a practice that could outlast even that. Yeah, it's uh, live streamed and live translated. So if you don't speak Italian, that's okay. Uh, oh, I hadn't uh, even thought about that fact that it wouldn't be in English. <laughs> yeah, it's actually great. The person who uh, is doing the live translations is a, uh, a Pauline sister who has the most soothing voice ever, as our colleague uh, Colleen Dully pointed out on Twitter. Um, and if you want to hear Colleen's thoughts on what's going on and how the Vatican is responding to this, you should listen to inside the Vatican this week, Colleen and Jerry O'Connell are really breaking down how this is affecting and how the church in Italy is cooperating with the secular government. Right. And this is also affecting us here in the United States as well. Um, Dioceses around the country and around the world are modifying uh, worship guidelines. So they're getting rid of the sign of peace. They're not distributing communion under uh, the species of the consecrated wine. And they're encouraging people not to take the Eucharist on the tongue as, uh, you know, precautionary measures to prevent further spread of the virus. So I would hope that everyone <laughs> follows these rules because even if even if you're um, someone who's healthy and not vulnerable to this virus, um, it, it's much more dangerous for, for older people and people with compromised immune systems. So really these, these small sacrifices are, are the least we can do. Yeah, I, I guess beyond that, how should Catholics be reacting to this? I mean, they're, they're, other than you know these these decrees that are being issued on how we worship together. How should how should we be thinking about this? Yeah, no, I, I thought a lot about this last week. Um, we we were crafting the uh, the editorial for America, which you can we- read on our website now. Um, and I think the most important thing is is thinking about this virus from like the standpoint of the common good, and instead of. Um, you know, how does this affect me? How does how does this affect um, the most vulnerable people in your community? Um, whether that's because they're vulnerable to being infected or vulnerable to the economic effects of of the disease. So, um, in in the editorial, we talked about this at like an individual and structural level. So, at the individual level, like you know, follow the guidelines, wash your hands, avoid uh, going to public spaces, those sort of things. But also don't don't hoard masks or hand sanitizer, um, which health workers need. Um, and then at the structural level, um, I think it's clear that this virus has shown some weaknesses in, in our safety net. You know, there are people who might who might be sick and should stay home, but feel like they can't because they don't have paid sick leave. So issues like that, um, they really show, you know, when one person is vulnerable, it can, it can affect everyone. Yeah. I've been thinking about how this is sort of exposing uh, our inability to understand any concept of, of rest or, or Sabbath, right? We're seeing all of these things canceled. We're being asked to work from home. We're not coming to work at all. Um, conferences, games canceled. And people sort of are really unsettled by that. And there's our, our society is structured as such that ourselves and our our systems sort of fall apart if there's not this constant doing 
I don't know, hopefully this is at least an opportunity for, you know, especially those of us who aren't sick. I mean, it's probably okay for us to, us to just rest for a little bit. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, personally, the thing that I've been most um, struck by is, I don't know, I'm someone who is pretty cavalier when it comes to my health. Like, I don't get sick very often. I don't really go to the doctor. I get annoyed that I have to pay health insurance and don't have to use it. Um, but kind of the confluence of this virus coming and uh, my sister giving birth amid amid the outbreak made me really stop and think about like, okay, I can't get this virus because even if I'll be fine, like I'm going to (laughs) be holding a newborn soon. And so like that kind of, you know, scared me into, you know, really taking seriously all the the guidelines about um, hygiene and social distancing. Um, So yeah, it, it, it kind of forced me to, to think beyond my own, uh, health and well-being, uh, which is a good thing. <laughs> no, totally. And I, I think there this represents an opportunity to be driven into either consolation or desolation in a lot of ways, right? I, I think moments like this, the evil spirit is ready to strike with confusion and panic and doubt or cavalierness or dismissiveness or apathy. All of those things, you know, in the spiritual life are exactly the type of thing that the evil spirit goes right for. And so it's important. I think you're bringing up a good point, like for us to be prayerful and thoughtful and consider those outside of us and also not to sort of at the same time, like be driven into despair and desolation. We need a lot of cool, calm heads to get this done. So anyone who wants to join us in that prayer, we actually we have a a coronavirus prayer online at AmericanMagazine.org now in a printable PDF format. So I encourage everyone to check that out. What's our next story, Zach? So this Friday, March 13th, Friday the 13th, this is a good Friday the 13th. It's the seventh anniversary of Pope Francis's papacy. Uh, so what, also part of this, uh, one of the big themes of his papacy has been creating a listening church. Um, and part of creating a listening church has been creating synods. Yes. So synods are the uh, gathering of bishops. Uh, we've, we've seen three big ones under Pope Francis uh, on the family, on young adults and vocation, and on the Amazon region. Uh, so these are occasions where all the bishops gather in Rome to talk about an issue that Pope Francis has chosen to highlight. And the next synod <laughs> has just been announced, and it is going to be a synod on synods. So in October 2022, uh, the synod will be for synodal church, communion, participation, and mission. So we're having a meeting to talk about meetings. <laughs> yeah, a little a little meta uh, and this, I don't know, my first reaction when I saw this headline was kind of to laugh because we often talk about how synod is just like such an obscure term. And so to have a synod on synods is like begging people to tune it out, right? <laughs> nope, totally. And I, yeah, anyone who's ever been a part of any bureaucratic process where you feel like you just have to talk about the rules about the rules, uh, I think can relate. This almost feels like it was written, a headline written by the onion. But it, it actually is an important topic, I think. Yeah. So these these synods have been flashpoints in Francis's papacy. Um, you might remember during the synod on the family, there was a lot of talk about communion for divorced and remarried people. And there's also been, you know, concern raised by some in the church that these synods, because Pope Francis has such an open style and encourages people to speak their minds, that 
you know, a lot of things are being said and it leads to confusion among the faithful. Um, so I think it is helpful for, you know, us to have a synod that kind of talks about the process itself and, and what, what a synod can do, what it can't do, um, making clear that this is not opening the church up to like democracy, you know, um, it's still guided by, by Pope Francis. This is important because it shows that Pope Francis is trying to make this outlast his own papacy, right? This isn't, synodality is not just going to be a quirk under Pope Francis. He wants it to sort of embed itself within the rest of the church. What's our next story, Ashley? Uh, This is not exactly breaking news, but it's still Lent. We're we're two weeks in. Feels a little bit longer than that. (laughs) Yeah, two weeks. Uh, I I, I thought it was half, but I've been informed that two weeks is not halfway through Lent. (laughs) Nope. Um, so we thought it'd be a good time to, to check in, see how we're doing, hold ourselves accountable to our, to our penances. Uh, so you'll recall if you listened to our episode a couple weeks ago, we had our friends Stephanie and Liel at the Unorthodox podcast, give us our Lenten penances. So what were those and how are you doing, Zach? All right. So I really thought these were going to be easier, uh, than they have been. So Liel, um, was nice enough to recommend that we not use any apps of convenience. Uh, that So ones like Seamless or Grubhub that allow us to get food um, just by tapping our phones instead of interacting with humans. Um, that sounded a lot easier before I was stuck inside my house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's funny. Um, so still haven't used it, um, it but it, I imagine it will be become more difficult in the coming weeks. And then the second one from Stephanie was to think about where the food that we eat comes from uh, every day. And that seemed also like it would be easy. And then I realized I didn't actually want to ask at restaurants, <laughs> hey, where does this food come from? There, there, it it right. seemed like there was no way to do that without sounding, uh, I don't know, sort of Snooty. hoity-toity. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I think I've realized recently that maybe that's just a pride thing and I just have to accept willing to be viewed as uh, rather snooty. Um, so I haven't really attempted that one a ton yet, especially when I'm out at restaurants, but I'm ready to recommit myself here in week two. How about you, Ashley? Um, yeah. So the, the app thing was pretty easy. I don't really order food that often though. I do hate talking on the phone. So I, even if I wanted to order food at this point, I would just not do it (laughs) instead of calling Domino's. (laughs) Um, I think that's missing the point, but okay. (laughs) Uh, in terms of thinking about where my food came from, so you know this, like I, I have a pretty monotonous diet. So I did look up where the, um, those, uh, honey mustard pretzels that I love so much come from, uh, they're, you know, they're Snyder's of Hanover. They come from Hanover, Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, and I learned, uh, that it's in York County, Pennsylvania, which is the, um, like food factory capital of the world. So you can go to the Hanover pretzel factory and get a tour. And now I definitely want to do that. Uh, so that was exciting. <laughs> well, you and uh, Stephanie and Leo will be pleased to know that I was able to find the Hanover pretzels while I was in Israel last week. Oh, that's so I fantastic. did buy some. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the best uh, um, airplane snack foods and just general true. snack foods. <laughs> um, but we also thought we would uh, take this time to sort of hash out a debate uh, that have been brewing on our Facebook page about whether or not Catholics can eat uh, the Impossible Burger during Fridays and Lent. Right, and this came. It was actually our Twitter 
or I saw it on Twitter. So we, uh, America created a very fun video last week in which we uh, did a blind taste test of the uh, fast food fish sandwiches that are, you know, a popular lunch during Fridays uh, during Lent when you can't have meat. So we wanted to test whether Wendy's, Burger King, McDonald's, or a local fish joint had the best fish sandwich. But And you were one of the judges, correct? I was. I was. It was very fun. And I chose Wendy's. I was very shocked. It- is that the one you decided to eat with a knife and fork, you crazy person? <laughs> no. Internet. Not enough people have made fun of Ashley for attempting to eat a fast food fish sandwich with a knife and fork. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to send your uh, comments to her, you can find her on Twitter. Yeah. I thought it would look more graceful on camera. Uh, joke us on me. <laughs> Did not. But all right. Anyways. That video led to a question from a listener uh, about whether you can eat an impossible burger during Lent. So these are plant-based burgers that taste a lot like meat. Um, and so, Zach, what do you think? Are they are they kosher during Lent? Uh, I'm going to say no. And I say that with the full knowledge that as someone who gets uh, a Chipotle burrito just without steak and with the sofritos in it, and it tastes basically the same. Um, it, it does feel a little bit like you are missing the spirit of the sacrifice. Agreed. I having I've had an impossible. I'm a, you know uh, I don't eat meat ever, um, and I had an impossible burger for. Yeah, so I, I'm not sh- I'm not sure why we're getting your opinion on this since you've never had meat. <laughs> so so okay. none of it is never a sacrifice for you on Friday. But but no, go ahead. Tell me tell me tell yeah. me what you think. Okay, I'm just saying that when I did have an impossible burger, like it tastes so much like I imagine meat to taste. like that it felt like i was cheating so on my vegetarianism so i just i don't want to have one ever much less during lent and another part of like giving up meat for lent is like in theory you're spending less money on expensive meat options and you can give that money um away in in charity and impossible burgers are no cheaper than a regular burger so you're not saving money and the the jury's still out on whether they're that much more environmentally sustainable so I'm going to vote no on this one. I I do think it does raise an interesting point about as humans consume less and less meat uh, as the years go on, are we eventually going to have to shift the the Friday abstinence during Lent? Mm. And if so, what would you select for the replacement? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's time that Catholics get serious about fasting. I think we could do something a little Mm. bit more hardcore than our mean, uh, then one meal and two snacks then one meal and two one big meal and two small <laughs> meals i think i think we could maybe institute some more restrictive rules around that but yeah um, i'm with you yeah it's i but then again it's an important conversation to be, especially be mindful of as our guest this week's going to point out people who have trouble fasting for health reasons and so if we ever you know years down the line think about something it could also be something not food related yeah no good point um, my other favorite part there, we, there's an article that they interview some experts about, uh, the impossible burger and a church leader pointed out that the, the meat, the abstinence from meat is not universal in all countries. And, and even in States, they have different exceptions. And in Michigan, Catholics are allowed to eat muskrat, <laughs> which I didn't even know was a thing <laughs> that people uh, ate, yeah. but well, yeah. love, love, you love it when Catholicism never stops surprising you with how weird it is. <laughs> Indeed. 
Joining us remotely from East Texas is Amanda Martinez Beck. She is a fat activist and the author of the book, Lovely, How I Learned to Embrace the Body God Gave Me. Welcome to Jesuitical, Amanda. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Of course. Uh, So you recently wrote an article for America titled, Why Lent Can Be a Dangerous Time When You're Recovering from an Eating Disorder. Um, Can you tell us why you you wanted to write this piece? Yeah, I have every year around uh, Ash Wednesday had a really hard time being in conversations with people who observe Lent because I only recently got diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, It's been a year. And, but I was already writing about how um, diet culture affects the way that we see fasting. I came of age at a church, uh, a Protestant church that practiced pretty intense fasting. And I'm coming into the Catholic church. There was so much freedom because of the teachings about the body and the goodness of our body and food and as a gift. But Lent is uh, the time when I think that an eating disorder can parade as spiritual discipline. <laughs> so, Can I ask what you mean by diet culture? That's a great question. Diet culture is the assumption or the collection of cultural impact and assumption that we need to be thin and healthy and we owe it to ourselves and other people to work towards that. And we spend money on that. Um, Rather than a contentment with our today body, it's we must change our body or maintain uh, the, the reality of a body of like, I don't know, an 18 or 21 year old, even when we're not there anymore. Amanda, can you talk, um, about how, how your relationship to your body has, has changed over your life? What, what has that you write in your piece about, you know, a year's long process of learning to accept the body that God gave you? Um, how, how did that happen? I have always inhabited a body bigger than my peers. Um, and my earliest memories are of me being different than others. And I look back at pictures of me when I was a little girl and when I was a teenager and even when I was in my 20s, I'm 35 now, and think, why did I feel so negatively about my body? I'm just a, a normal kid. <laughs> I'm the child of medical people. My dad is a physician and my mom is a nurse. And so we always talked about health in bodies and how being, quote, overweight was really bad and scary. And thinness and health were kind of equivalent. I think that a lot of people hold that equivalency. And so I started to question like, is it true? Do I need to be smaller? Does my body need to change to be acceptable and pleasing? Because I'm not doing anything different than my friends and family. And I still inhabit this bigger body. And when did you start asking those questions? Well, Oprah helped me a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When she bought a majority stock in Weight Watchers or whatever she bought, the words that she used sounded like the gospel. Um, 
she talked about hope and being able to be free from being fat. (laughs) And it resonated in me because I still carry a lot of internalized fat phobia. Even with years of training myself not to be anti-fat, it's still deeply rooted in me. Mm. And so hearing Oprah being like, oh, if you do this program, then you can be free and, and enjoy your life more. It inspired hope in me. And then I realized, you know what? I have done Weight Watchers and it didn't work. And it didn't make me any happier with my body. And so I think I want to see if the gospel language here is appropriate. And so I started to drill down into what is what is the purpose of a body? What is the call of God for bodies? And I discovered the teachings in the catechism. I was already Catholic, but in paragraph 364, it says that we are obliged to regard our bodies as good. And so, okay, if something is good, what does that mean? It means that it fulfills its purpose. Um, I'm married to an English professor who likes philosophy. So we talk a lot about goodness and the, the end, the telos of something. And so what is the end or purpose of a body? It's not to be thinner mm. and it's not to be healthy because that's ableist, <laughs> right? If, especially as a, a Catholic is deeply pro-life whole life, I can't say that the purpose of my body is to be as healthy as it can be because that neglects the goodness in my disabled neighbor's body and in my terminally ill neighbor's body and in the preborn baby that has a Down syndrome diagnosis's body. And so to realize that the, the purpose of my body is to have a relationship with God and with my neighbor as myself. Amanda, I feel challenged by, especially by your uh, sort of assessment of health not being the purpose of bodies. I guess that's not something I've really ever considered, um, especially because I I guess I've always thought, you know, and without taking away the dignity of um, the disabled or the ill, um, I've always thought that, you know, to keep my own body healthy was to try and maximize my time here with my loved ones, I guess. When you talk about this and talk to people about this, is that a sentiment you hear a lot or, um, and how do you respond to that? It's a really good question. And I do hear it a lot. I would counter with the reality that health is not just physical health. Mm -hmm. Because for me, as someone with an eating disorder, pursuing what I thought was physical health was majorly harming my body. Um, because I had, I have a mental illness (laughs) and, um, it created challenges in my life that prevented me from living a full life. If if running a mile or seven miles brings you peace, then please do it. But what if we could orient our exercise regimens <laughs> towards neighbor care? Um, what if instead of me focusing on, well, I need to walk a mile every day, what if I, I don't know, coached my kids' soccer team? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, 
I, th- I think that exercise that's divorced from community can become an idol. Um, and I, I don't mean it in a way of like judging someone for having that because I've definitely been there. But idols ask more and more of us and give less and less uh, benefit. Physical bodies have mental, emotional, spiritual health too. And always asking the Holy Spirit to give us feedback on, uh, you know, am I obsessing about working out? If I miss a day at the gym, does it completely undo me? Do I feel like a failure? Is it a moral issue if my body size changes? That's an evidence that something is disordered and that we need to address it. Yeah. Hearing you say that, um, you know, I think like a lot of women, I have like struggled with um, accepting my own body. And one, I, I had a thought once a couple of years ago that like, if the communion had like 500 calories, would I still want to take it? And it was like an absurd thought, but like, it was really challenging to me. Cause I was like, what do, what, what do I value here? Um, and so I'm re- I really, um, resonate with what you said about like making an idol of, of our, of our bodies. Um, uh, at the same time, so within the Catholic uh, tradition, you know, like we, we list gluttony as one of the seven deadly sins. So like, how do you think about that? Like, do you, do you have a, a maybe a different way of thinking about gluttony that um, kind of conforms with how you think about how you think about bodies and health? Yeah. And I owe this understanding to my co-host on our podcast, um, Nicole Morgan. She um, has a book of the same name as our podcast. It's called the fat and faithful podcast. And, uh, she's been instrumental in my understanding that gluttony isn't about overconsumption because that is so subjective. What is too much? Like eating food is morally neutral and food is not dirty unless it like has salmonella in it. Right. So (laughs) if I feel like eating 17 ice cream sandwiches, Sure, I'm going to feel sick probably after that, but I haven't done anything morally wrong. Unless I'm staring at my child who has asked for an ice cream sandwich and I'm being like, no, I need this and you don't get it. Like it's overconsumption that harms your neighbor. And if you look in the scriptures, I think it's a very powerful case that the gluttony that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah and other places isn't so much about the food. It's that neighbor care sucks. I mean, if you think about Lot when the angels come to visit him and he's like, oh, don't worry, I'll give my daughters to the you know sex hungry people outside my door. Like people are being harmed. It's not about eating, quote, too much bread or too much meat. It's that if I'm going to drink almond milk, I'm going to need to realize that it, the practices to give me, you know, two gallons of almond milk a week may not be the best for the earth. The tomatoes that I'm eating may have come from farm laborers that were not paid well. Like there's no way in our culture to avoid food that oppresses the poor, but becoming aware of it and seeking justice in food production is a part of breaking that gluttony in the United States. Yeah, actually, one of our Lenten penances that we had been given from uh, friends at a, a sister podcast of ours, um, they, they asked us to think about where all of our food was coming from. Uh, and I have found that much more difficult 
than simply uh, abstaining from a particular food. Right. So when you abstain, say you decide to give up chocolate for Lent or whatever, all you can think about is not eating chocolate, right? Mm-hmm. You, <laughs> or not drinking when you're doing your podcast. Like, yeah. Um, and, <laughs> can confirm. And that's, <laughs> that's biological. Our bodies are so smart that if we're not eating something, even if we're making that choice, our brain goes, oh my gosh, I'm never going to eat bread again. I need to eat all the bread I can find right now so that I can store up. Have, have you given up on fasting totally? Or are there other ways that you can still integrate that discipline into your life? Maybe, maybe non-food related fasting? Great question. I am not able to fast from food. Um, and that is okay. Um, because I have an illness and I think that, um, there are a ton of people in the church that do not realize that they do have an eating disorder or the step before that, which is disordered eating. I would love to see us in the American church practice something like fasting from food that's, you know, not ethically sourced or, or giving up body hatred for the sake of my neighbor. And so I do think that the the importance of having a discipline during Lent is really powerful. I think there's an extra grace we get as we work through that. I want whatever fast I do, though, to line up with what Isaiah says in chapter 58, that the purpose of the fast is to break the bonds and to set prisoners free. So if a fast can do that, th- that's what I want my fast to do. Can you talk a little bit um, about maybe the practical steps that parishes could take uh, to be more accepting of large bodies or to encourage um, encourage better relationships between people and their bodies? So the first thing is make sure that you have accessible seating for fat bodies. It is very hard for me to stand uh, during mass because... I I do have chronic pain um, and arthritis issues, but also when I stand up, my belly pushes against the pew in front of me and I'm unable to kneel just because the space is too small for my bigness. Um, And that's okay. I found ways of meeting with God and being reverent without standing and without kneeling. Um, But I do feel self-conscious about it and, and think that others, you know, I always I'm trying not to care what other people think, but I do. And also make sure that your pews are bolted to the floor or to the wall if they're against the back. Because a few months ago, I took one of my children with me to Mass, and I sat down in the pew and it fell over in the middle of Mass. And that was scary because my three-year-old and I were pinned underneath this pew. Um, And not only is that embarrassing, but it was dangerous. And so that's one way. Making sure that you have albs and choir robes for bigger bodies. And if you're not Catholic and you're in a church that does immersion baptism, having baptismal robes that accommodate body size, um, those are practicals. And then really reconsider parish weight loss programs. The stories are so many that it's it's hard to share all of them. Um that I've been told, but some people have had the experience of when they show up at a parish 
and a fat body, people are like, oh, have you heard about our parish weight loss program? Mm -hmm. And not just from one person, right? And so examining how the programming that you have at, at, at your church communicates your priorities to your parishioners. That's a big one. That's tough because I imagine these people think that they're being welcoming and they're doing the exact opposite. Yes. Mm, that sounds really hard. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm curious, how do you, with this life experience as a parent of young children, how do you approach teaching them eating uh, health and relationships? Ooh, this is a really great question because I'm writing that chapter in my book right now. My next book. <laughs> we'll help you help you get it out. Right, right here. Good. I'll send um, you the transcript. <laughs> awesome. Um so four things that I do with my children. One, when they talk about bodies, I don't shame them or shush them. I let them ask curious questions. The way that we respond to our children when they make innocent observations about bodies, the way we respond to them communicates our values. So my daughter was at a restaurant and she said, mommy, that lady is fat like you. She's going to have a baby. And I wasn't pregnant, <laughs> but I had had a baby recently and realizing that I needed to say something like, oh, tell me why you think that. Oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? And and letting my child fill in those blanks so they're not imposing my fat phobia onto them. And it's okay if someone else hears them be called fat. Like they will get over it. I would much rather have my child know that it's okay to be fat than to offend a stranger. Like I'll let the Lord take care of their heart <laughs> and and teach my child. So letting my child have freedom to be curious about bodies and talk about them. Two is to um, examine my own personal biases in the way that I talk about my body in front of them. Because most people that I talk to have their parents' voice inside their head about their body or a relative that spoke about their bodies. And I want my children to only have the goodness of their bodies on repeat in their head from me. Three is we talk about the media that we watch. And we discuss how they portray different sized bodies. That is important because I don't know if y'all have seen two movies that I've been thinking about. One, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is from 1970. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's the stuff of nightmares, honestly, of falling into a river and being made fun of because you're fat and then getting stuck in a tube or turning into a blueberry and having to be rolled away. Like, and that's not all the fat phobia in that movie, but Oh my goodness, we were watching it the other day with my children. And I was like, I'm, I am tensing up because this is so, so um, dehumanizing. Um, and I'm a, I'm a confident, secure woman <laughs> at peace with my body, how, how is this affecting them? So making sure we just have the conversation. And then fourth is that we reaffirm the truth. You know, it's okay to be fat because all bodies are good bodies. The purpose of our bodies is relationship, not perfection or health or thinness. And my today body is good. Your today body is good. My children are going to get a constant stream of body negativity. And because my husband and I are both large people, they are probably going to inhabit bodies that don't conform to the cultural standards of attractiveness or 
fitness. So we have a call and repeat. And what do we say about bodies? All bodies are good bodies, mom. (laughs) And my kids right now are eight, six, four, and three. And so we do that a lot. (laughs) Almost every day we talk about bodies. (laughs) Yeah. I don't remember much from my childhood. I just have a terrible memory, but I do remember probably I was in like third grade going up to my nanny and being like, I have a pot belly. I hate my pot belly. And her just being like, oh, suck it in. If you suck it in long enough, it'll stay like that. And like that is just ingrained in my memory. Uh, So I think I I really appreciate you um, sharing these, these insights about how to talk to talk to children about their bodies. Um, it's really, really important. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted just to like quickly unpack is you use, you use the language of pro-life. Um, how, how do you see fat activism, I guess, as, as a pro-life issue? If our bodies are good and they're created for relationship and not some fantasy of perfection, then the immigrant that I meet fleeing violence in their country, their body is worth just as much as mine. The elderly person in a nursing home, their body is still good and not disposable. The relationships that we can have in weakness are amazing. Our weaknesses tether us to each other and to Jesus. And so when I see my body as good, even in its weakness, then I can visit the sick and and have a care for them that's deep and honest, instead of being afraid that they're going to disrupt my health. (laughs) And I can walk with a mom that has a preborn child with a diagnosis that's terrifying. If we want a society where abortion is unnecessary because people have resources, um, they don't feel afraid when they're making choices about children, and we want a society that doesn't advocate for euthanasia and that welcomes the stranger, the dignity of the human person is underneath all of that. and. I am talking about the dignity of the fat person because that is the most, maybe not the most, but one of the most reviled categories of humans in our culture. And that's not okay. (laughs) And so speaking from experience, I can make a difference in the way that people view themselves and other humans. And that is a pro-life mission for me. Amanda, thank you so much for your work and for all those you're willing to advocate for now. Um, We do have one final question for you. Uh, We ask all our guests this. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? I'm ready because I listen to the (laughs) podcast. Awesome. (laughs) We love that. (laughs) And I know that I'm not um, the first to say this by any means, but Henry Nowen. All right. Tell us why. (laughs) Um, His book, The Life of the Beloved, changed me that the idea that we just like the the eucharist and just like jesus himself are chosen blessed broken and given wow he drew me into the catholic church he talks about weakness in a way that i can access and every book i read makes me know (laughs) uh, god more the suffering christ 
um, and the victorious Christ. So that is why Henry Nouwen is my candidate. Awesome. All right. Amanda, thank you so much. Where can people find your work and follow you? I am on Twitter at Amanda M. Beck, and I am on Instagram, uh, Your Body is Good. And I share handwritten messages about fat liberation there. And then I have a podcast, the Fat and Faithful podcast, and my website is amandamartinusbeck.com. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Amanda. It was great to talk to you. Thank y'all. All right. Thanks. How can Catholic people prepare for this year's election? Archbishop John Wester and renowned speakers will help us think. Vatican Nuncio Christophe Pierre will help us pray. Register for the June Assembly of the Association of United States Catholic Priests at auscp.org. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? Uh, unsurprisingly, I came away from my pilgrimage to the Holy Land with a ton of consolations and a ton of graces. Uh, I'm just going to pick one for now. I obviously went to the Holy Land, uh, sort of in a, in a place where I was looking for some healing, um, mourning the death of my grandmother. And also the other grace I asked for was that I could deepen my relationship with Jesus because my prayer has never been very Jesus centric. I don't know if that's weird or surprising to hear, but anytime someone asks me like, oh, imagine Jesus doing this or imagine Jesus telling you, having a conversation with you. I, my, my imagination just doesn't work that way. I can't do it. Uh, and so that's always been very difficult for me. However, once my grandmother died, she was sort of the first person who I've really wanted to talk to, but couldn't. I was praying about that uh, while staring out at the Sea of Galilee, like it's this place that Jesus had also looked out at. And I had this experience, and I'm going to say it felt like uh, Jesus put his hand on my shoulder, and it didn't actually physically feel that way, but sort of the way that I emotionally, spiritually know something is true and happening uh, felt like that. And it felt like I heard him say, you can still talk to her, and you can talk to me too. And so. Cue the waterworks, uh, crying, uh, but also just filled up with a lot of consolation that, um, again, death isn't the end. It, it doesn't have the final say. Uh, and that, that combination of both healing and setting out a blueprint for deepening relationship with Jesus was my consolation, one of my consolations from that trip. Mm, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure there are many more that you can <laughs> share in the coming weeks. Yeah. So I also have a consolation. Um, sound kind of weird, but I I feel like fear gets a bad rap <laughs> in Christianity. Uh, you know, with good reason. Jesus often says, "Be not afraid," and um, I think that's because fear can lead to despair, or defensiveness, or selfishness. But as as I mentioned when we we're talking about the coronavirus, um, I don't know. I I have been filled with some fear uh, thinking about. Um, this new life that's coming into the world with my sister and fearing complications with childbirth and fearing me getting sick and passing that on to uh, a vulnerable newborn. Um, So 
I was anxious and I was afraid. Um, but I, you know, it drove me to reflection and to prayer. And instead of, you know, letting that fear kind of take control and, and drive my actions, I, I feel like it, it led me to realize the things I can't control and, and, and bring those to God in prayer and then, and then do everything in my, that I can do, you know, um, whether that was, you know, leaving New York early just to be closer to my sister and to minimize my risk, um, just to, um, be able to be there for her. And yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I feel like a lot of people are, I don't know, feel like they can't be afraid, but the, the fear is not the, the bad thing. Everyone feels fear. It's like when you let that drive you to despair, that it becomes a desolation. And I feel like I was able to like, through prayer, let fear exist, but not be in control. Um, and so that's been really helpful amid this crisis um, and amid the very exciting uh, coming of my niece. So, What I'm hearing is it sounds like you took the fear and it allowed you to sort of love more, yeah. uh, which I find really beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. And it's clear that your this new niece is going to be so loved by her business, yeah she's so lucky <laughs> yep i need to i need to go to the hospital so i'm gonna i'm gonna cut us off now <laughs> gonna cut us off all right perfect well ashley we are praying for you and your family and your sister and your niece thank you so much all right judge Whitical is produced by sebastian gomes our editor is noah levinson faith formation provided by father eric sundra production help from Izzy Seneschal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whittacle Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to APS717. Judge Whittacle is recorded in the William J. Lotrip Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>